The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. John Gibbons is here for his last word on the environment. John, great to see you again this week. And we normally have pretty depressing news around the environment to talk about, but this is the presence going into the environment. Yeah, good evening, Ian. Yeah, this is a new study uh, based on, on some water sampling in, in a number of rivers, Ian, uh, the, the Liffey, the Shure, the Nore and the Annalee. And what the researchers were trying to look at is the concentrations and presence of pharmaceuticals. These are basically mostly uh, pharmaceuticals that would have emanated from humans. So um, it might be obvious, but uh, when we when we take a, a pharmaceutical product, um, we basically, that, that is then passed through our system and through our urine and into the waterways. Now, you would expect, and I think many people would assume, that our water treatment plants would be capable of, of filtering uh, these contaminants, these pollutants out, because obviously pharmaceutical drugs, you do not want them mixing with general water. Uh, so the situation is, however, that um, we would require, in order to filter these these. Uh, pharmaceuticals out of our waterways, our water treatment plants would require what are called tertiary treatment, which is extremely expensive. And in Ireland, we have little or no tertiary treatment, which means that the pharmaceuticals that are excreted through human bodies and indeed through livestock, because remember, a lot of pharmaceuticals in Ireland are actually administered to livestock. They end up being excreted, finding their way to, into the waterways, either through the sewage system or directly uh, by by, by um, just just leaching into into rivers and so on. And I suppose that the question arises, what are the impacts? Yeah, and these, these are yeah. pretty obvious. Sorry, these were pretty well-known drugs as well. Yes, yeah. The kind of drugs, uh, Ian, that we're talking about uh, would include uh, diclofenac, which is an anti-inflammatory, in other words, a painkiller. Uh, there's diabetes drugs. There are certain antibiotics. And there's also antidepressants. And also there's a, a class of drug that's used to treat epilepsy. So these are very, very common drugs. And they're finding their way, as I say, into the waterways, and they're having all kinds of unpleasant effects. So, for example, um, their ability to disrupt fish reproduction is one of the key things. They're, they're what are called end- endocrine disruptions. So basically you end up with, with, with uh, degendered fish. So that would be one, one particular example. And I guess what the researchers found in this is that they, from, their, from their various sampling, they, they identified 53 what they classified as high-risk sites in Ireland. Uh, and they also found another 64 sites that they categorised as moderate risk. Now, as you might expect, probably the most contaminated river was actually the Liffey. And that makes sense, really, because, of course, that is uh, closest to the large urban population. So obviously, there's more human-based pharmaceutical waste finding its way. How do we try and mitigate this? Is it something, as you said, as water treatment, do we need to put more investment there or do we need to start looking at the rivers themselves and looking at even greater cleanups? The cleanups at the river level won't do it. The only way really to mitigate this is to go down the route of tertiary treatment, which is extremely expensive. Now, this is, of course, an even bigger problem in the developing world where they've basically got almost no water filtration and they have enormous problems with water contamination from Pretty much everything ends up in in the waterways, in the rivers, and works its way into the sea. And I suppose the kind of impacts that we're talking about here, Ian, if I can give you one example, which was a really striking example, and this this occurred in uh, East Asia uh, about twenty years ago. Um, vets started to widely prescribe the drug diclofenac that I mentioned already. This is uh, an anti-inflammatory, and they were prescribing it for um, or administering it 
to sick cattle to try to treat sick cattle with diclofenac. And it was widely used by farmers right across East Asia. And the impact of it was absolutely phenomenal. It led to a 99.9% collapse in the numbers of vultures in the region. Now, I know you normally talk about other types of vultures, but these are real vultures. Now, vultures get a very bad name. Vultures are, in fact, unbelievably useful animals because when another animal dies, the vulture comes along and basically cleans up the waste. And and why that's so important is that it prevents infection, it prevents disease spread. So vultures are a hugely important part of the ecosystem. And the use of diclofenac over a 20-year period brought vulture populations in South Asia to almost disappearance. So that will give you an example or a real case of how sensitive um, ecosystems and and species can be to to human pharmaceuticals. I want to go on to this one next because it's it's fascinating actually. This is... um, Every time we do the slot, John, you'll get a reaction on text. Oh, it's seven four one hundred one zero two. But you'll also get a lot of reaction on Twitter, and a lot of climate people, scientists, professionals, environmentalists are noticing that since Elon Musk bought Twitter a year ago, the level of abuse and attacks on them has increased. That's right. There's been a, a number of reports. So this isn't. Uh, it started out Ian as anecdotal, and again, I follow climate Twitter pretty closely, and I had noticed various well-known scientists. Some some would have significant. They wouldn't be rock stars now like Matt Cooper, but. Be able, <laughs> yeah. No, these would be people maybe with, you know, 30,000, maybe 50,000, maybe 80,000 followers, like on a global scale, that's quite modest. And they're getting absolutely sledged. And what I noticed that this has happened over the last few months, uh, coinciding, as you said, with the arrival of the exciting new owner. And the first thing, almost the first thing that Musk did was there, there's a sustainability division inside Twitter, which, as the name suggests, is, or sorry, was engaged in trying to figure out good content, bad content, and they prided themselves up until the middle of last year on carefully filtering and engaging with scientists to make sure that climate disinformation was filtered out. And and one really effective way in that Twitter did this was that some of the disinformation sort of purveyors, guys like um, Jordan Peterson and, of course, Donald Trump, uh, they were actually simply delisted and, and, and stopped. Now, of course, since Musk arrived, the, the uh, free speech guy, uh, they're all back. And what we also see, which is a really interesting phenomenon, is that, as you know, once upon a time, the blue tick, you know, was a status point or whatever. It meant it was a recognised person. Now it means somebody who's paid $8 to get on there. And when you take a blue tick, they get bumped up the listings. So what I've noticed is, so like a famous scientist like Michael Mann, when he posts it, there's a swarm of blue ticks. These are the $8 experts, as we call them, and they're swarming in to attack him. And this is unfortunately seeing the the, the quality of engagement on sites like Twitter. And in a sense, they, they remind me of uh, the equivalent uh, in, in internet terms of a denial of service attack. The idea here is to flood the scientist or the, the, the other uh, environmental communicator with so much abuse uh, that it looks to the onlooker as if they're in a minority. But has it led to... The other issue, which would be the bigger concern, is disinformation. So the abuse is one thing and that's wrong and it's terrible. But have we also seen an increase in disinformation around climate? Oh, massively. I mean, through Twitter, as I say, Twitter had quite a good disinformation filter, probably a lot better, say, than Facebook, where some of the really crazy stuff was going on. Uh, some of the other sites, uh, I'm told, for example, that even TikTok, I'm not a user of TikTok, but my... my um, Younger family members are TikTok users and they tell me that stuff on TikTok uh, that's out of line is taken down really quickly. But Twitter has gone in exactly the opposite journey. So this uh, libertarian approach means that 
we're getting much worse content. And also that means that there, there's guys, I'm not even going to mention their name, Ian, because I'd, I'd be just giving them publicity, but there are well-known climate deniers who now, for example, a study was done some time back and what it found is that, you know, sort of established climate figures, for including scientists and well-known people like Greta Thunberg, they've, get, they've gained almost no new followers in the last six months, whereas the climate deniers... Uh, when 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 their new followers were charted, they were found to have gained five, ten, fifteen, even fifty percent up uptick in followers. So there's something going on here. Uh, somebody's got their hand on the scales of the of the algorithms behind Twitter. I I don't know. I could rack my brains to try and figure out who which particular no, no. Uh, libertarian no, no. extremist might be pushing this agenda. But unfortunately, it has turned what has been you know one of probably our standout uh, social media platform that most scientists, as you know, most media people too, but most scientists were comfortable to use Twitter. Unfortunately, what we're seeing here now is that some of them, including a lot of female scientists... You can avoid the blue ticks right now. Anybody that has it, that should tell you to avoid. And John Gibbons, we're all out of time on that. We'll see you next week for your last word on the environment. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30.